Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu, one of the hosts of this channel. Today we have with us Malika Kaur, whose book Faith, Gender and Activism in the Punjab Conflict, The Wheat Fields Still Whisper, was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. Uh, Malika is a lawyer, writer and is currently a lecturer at UC Berkeley School of Law. Welcome Malika to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sneha. Um, so, Malika, let's start this off with you telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps um, how you became a lawyer and your areas of specialization or something. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am a writer, a lawyer and a teacher. And in all of this, I've always focused on international human rights work, particularly on gender and minority issues. And this was really necessitated by the fact that I grew up in Punjab as a young as a young girl, as a young woman, and as a young Sikh girl. Um, and this was in Punjab in the 80s and 90s. And we're talking about Punjab on the Indian side. Punjab is divided between India and Pakistan since 47. Um, and growing up at a time when Punjab was seeing spirals of violence that were really cementing intergenerational trauma um, and, and in, in lots of families were causing just un, un, you know, till date unreparated losses. Having grown up in that context really is what gave rise to my interest in human rights. Law seemed like a natural, a possible tool. Um, so that's really what I, um, how I ended up with the, with the legal, you know, looking at law as a as a tool to use towards furthering international and uh, international human rights. And, and then, you know, the gender focus was really, again, something that having grown up in a context, a South Asian context that is uh, pervaded by patriarchy and at every step, no matter what your class background, women, girls and women, their freedoms are curtailed. Um, so I've always had a very personal um desire to intervene if at all possible and when possible on issues of gender violence. So I have done, um, you know, work ever since both, both in Punjab and in other parts uh, in Kashmir and other parts of South Asia on issues of conflict and post-conflict. But the gender focus is one that means there's plenty to do no matter where I find myself. So I'm currently in California. I work um, at a family law firm with victims of violence predominantly I also teach uh, at UC Berkeley School of Law and mostly on classes that are related to uh, skills for future human rights activists and social justice um, lawyers. So that's that's really the there. There are some it feels like perhaps and it sounds like um, I'm sure that there are a lot of different things that I've ended up doing. But the the through line there has really been um, human rights and, and gender justice. Well, thank you. That's. Um... Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, as someone who's read this book, uh, I can see the reflections of your own expertise on these issues uh, in in the pages that you uh, so beautifully penned. Um, I was wondering if you could share with our readers uh, how this book emerged, how, how this project began. Um, I ask this especially since there's such a clearly personal and political investment in this book. Um, I was it would be great if we could get some sense of how it all began. Sure. The book is 
as just right on the cover, you see three people on the books, and 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 those are the human rights defenders around whose lives the book, um, you know, the book developed. And so that's so simply the book is about human rights defenders in Punjab during the deadliest years of conflict. So those who chose to when they didn't need to, but chose to stand in the way of the oppression and the violence that had really silenced and paralyzed um, or even turned most others. Um, But more philosophically, I think this book was conceived as a way to, to again, intervene on fatalism. There's this common refrain and I'll, and I'll share what I, the refrain I refer to in Punjab. And then I I think this is actually true for, for South Asia and maybe beyond that, you know, no one stands for or against anything. And there's this general kind of fatalism around what can citizens really do. There is a lack of confidence in what citizen activists can do as we pump more and more money and faith into larger organizations and activism becomes more and more professionalized in our generation. it feels it felt like there's a distance from the legacy that has come before us and and in Punjab's context for me personally it was very interesting the way our history is told is that Sikhs and those who stood up to oppression stood up against you know starting with the very first Sikh guru went to jail for standing against the Mughal ruler so these are things that um have been lionized in our history for generations. Um, And then suddenly we have the late 70s onwards, which were years that became just um, talked about in euphemisms and referred to more like those days uh, or, you know, Punjabi, in Punjabi it's una denavich. So it's just like in those days, you know, and just people won't say too much more, not especially if they don't know what the politics of the person sitting across from them is. Um, and, and this idea of six being lionized was also something that, you know, I, I did all of my schooling um, till, till college in, in uh, Chandigarh, the capital of Punjab. And I think this general, even in history books, Indian history books, six are, are lionized through the British times, through the partition of India, even though it's not called partition, um, even in Punjab, it's celebrated um, officially as Independence Day, but it was the time when um, Punjab was brutally partitioned between the two nation, current nation states. Um, but it, it was always this, wow, six stand up for so much, and then it switches. Um, and in the 70s and 80s, there's this criminalization. And then after that, as the, you know, after 1995, the kind of officially or um, generally agreed upon end of the conflict, then there's this weird ways in which Sikhs are sidelined and marginalized and kind of still made to stand a little bit on the side from the from the mainstream and having to prove that they belong at, at a lot of steps. So those were some of the observations personally and some of these contradictions and how we ourselves understand our history, how our history is written and told that drove me to to write this book. And and as I had begun studying Punjab's conflict history with some distance from Punjab when I was um, in the U.S. as a student, I began looking at just what what narratives exist, who wrote them, who told them, who 
who did they talk to before they wrote those narratives? Like were, were these um, actually filling those white spaces in the newspaper items from those years where just a lot was left to imagination and hardly, hardly anything uh, in terms of details about human rights um, issues was actually discussed. And I felt there was a real dearth of voices um, that, embraced all the complexity that any conflict brings about in the Punjab conflict is, is no exception. So, so this book uh, now, the way it, it reads, and, and you know, thank you for closely reading it, it is about human rights defenders, not just the three on the cover, but the countless human rights defenders and others that and survivors of human rights abuses whom these protagonists invoke in telling a collective history history of Punjab. And, and I'm, I'm really fascinated by this, this idea that even though we keep, uh, you know, now it's like, oh, nobody stands for anything we've missed or often not spoken about when it comes to the conflict years, the several people who did stand in the way of oppression and, and saved um, countless lives as they, as they did that. Yeah. Um, I mean, as somebody who, uh, and we've talked about this before, but as someone who grew up in the Southern uh, uh, states of India, I was, when I was reading this, I was, I was actually a little bit ashamed of knowing so little about uh, such, uh, such, uh, such a long conflict and such a deep conflict. And just, it was very strange to me that we live and inhabit the same country in a sense, but it's just several worlds apart from one another. And yeah, like there are some things about uh, Punjab and the conflict that have stuck out in history and purposely so, of course. Um, but this was very enlightening for someone like me to encounter um, personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think, uh, you know, I mentioned this right in the first chapter that there are two, it's kind of pitted as two sides of the conflict. Like, oh, there's the official story, the government story that, you know, this one extremist leader took advantage of economic and other hardships in Punjab and just really used religion as a tool to turn people into towards extremism. And the government had to do something, especially because Pakistan was also, which is always, you know, um, especially for a border state like Punjab. And um, invoking Pakistan is is always something that it happens whenever there's any sort of unrest. So there's that official government story, and I think that government story somehow, despite at that time in the 80s, and especially when everything erupted in 1984 when Punjab was under military rule and um, just uh, attacked in ferocious ways, um, that somehow narrative permeated across India despite international. Uh, even international coverage and attention that, you know, Punjab had to be contained. Um, So there's that narrative. And then there's this opposing side um, of the story, supposedly, which is about how Sikh power and pride um, had been attacked since the partition um, of Punjab. And that over time, these were genuine grievances that became a reason for um, uh, became a reason for a leader rising up and raising these issues more loudly. And then after his own murder, how it became a militancy. And and these stories too, um, this other supposed other side, uh, these stories emerged and have in some ways been recorded much more in the diaspora outside of Punjab, um, in the diaspora worldwide where people felt the freedom to speak. But I have found that both sides of the story very often are entirely 
violence centric um, in a way that it's all about the combatants, um, the government, you know, the state combatants, the police officers, who was in charge, who wasn't, what did they do, the army officers, etc. And on the other hand, who were the big militants? Like, when did they die? How many people did they take down dying? Like, there's this obsession on both sides with violence, which is not just when it comes to Punjab. I mean, we are riveted and completely obsessed with violence as a human race. Um, and so this this book is really also this this ask and hope that we shift that attention and our collective understanding a little bit and be fascinated more by everyday everyday people and, and citizen activists who really believe that there isn't a romanticism in resistance, that resistance has to also be within um, a framework that is a rights framework and that it has to be something that we we take up just as our duty, not as something that necessarily we're getting paid for or getting um, or doing safely or doing in a way that doesn't interrupt our daily lives. Yeah, I mean, this, um, the theme that I kept going back to when I was reading your book was, uh, it's not just resistance, but also resilience, right? And um, how gendered this resilience was in a way, like all these invisible women in their capacity as mothers, sisters, um, daughters were uh, doing a lot of the work of keeping perhaps a community strong and uh, resilient. Um, that that definitely came through. If um, as a reader, I might comment, uh, your intention was, uh, I think, very clear in the pages and it was very helpful um, to rewrite uh, the way we look at a conflict. Uh, but before we go, in, uh, go into more detail and perhaps speak more concretely about some of the things that you'd uh, talked about in your book, I was very struck by the way you've organized uh, the the staggering amount of uh, data and um, information and stories that you've gathered over many years. Uh, and there are two timelines that crisscross through the book, and each chapter uh, first takes us down one story and then uh, does this very interesting multi-layering of uh, different time periods. And I was uh, hoping that, I mean, I know you'll be more articulate in explaining the logic behind the way you've structured time in this book. And if you could share with our listeners some of that. Sure. Uh, one of the challenges, and people say the first book you ever write is the hardest one. Um, but really, the reason this book took me the number of years it, it took me is is not just that the the topic was so close to my my heart and questions I'd grown up with and all of that, it was also because I didn't go in with an agenda or outline of, you know, I'm going to do these 10 interviews and I'll be able to plug them in under such and such themes. I, I really, I didn't even know if it would end up as a book ever. I was just interested in recording a lot of voices of people. Um, all my protagonists, all the superstars in my book um, are, and in my mind, are people who, um, you know, the youngest ones were in their late 70s. So these were people whose um, stories I really felt a very urgent need to record. And as I was recording them, I was very struck by this challenge of how does one represent, honestly represent community memory, um, which is not linear and it's not monotone. It's not monolithic. It's, and, and really as, as um, you've, you mentioned interwoven and, um, and that's true. And as six and with our, Legacy, one of our identifiers, oftentimes being our long hair, like this this idea of just braiding things 
braiding. Um, at one point, I remember just like really literally drawing out a braid and being like, okay, here's one timeline and this is how I would um, intersect with the other. So what the book has ended up doing is it's um, that there's a conflict um, era timeline, the more recent conflict, which starts in 1995, which is, um, and it's meant to be a descending timeline because oftentimes when the Punjab conflicts talked about, as, as I've also done just a few minutes ago, we start with 1984 the year of the army um, attacks and occupations of Punjab and, and then kind of talk about what it all, what it unleashed. And I chose to start in descending order from 1995 um, in, in the conflict in the more recent conflict timeline. And then each chapter has an interwoven section, um, this interlude of much earlier history, which actually starts in 1839, um, which is the year of transition from, Sikh rule um, under Maharaja Ranjit Singh to British colonial rule and the and Punjab um, really after ended up being uh, the 10 years after uh, the Maharaja died, Punjab uh, fell to British colonial rule and became the last kingdom to be absorbed um, in, in colonial by the colonials. And the reason this was really important is that as I talked to my interlocutors and community members, um, it was people would invoke this earlier history. That's where a lot of, you know, people felt like what had happened in the, in the decades that followed was really um, had, had its roots in the self identity um, that they linked back to or referred back to um, the time of the only time of Sikh Punjab, uh, Sikh self rule over Punjab. And, I thought this was really important in terms of how a community trying to ex- explain how a community understands its own self, how it sees and defines autonomy. Um, you know, the even this time of Sikh self rule wasn't a time where it was only a Sikh kingdom; it was quite the contrary. And and in fact, many many Sikhs would <laughs> argue about whether Maharaja Ranjit Singh should even be called a great Sikh or not, because he didn't live by some of the primary tenets of of the Sikh faith. And so there's there's a lot of complications there. But I thought those were good a good place to start telling that earlier history, just so as. So the reader gets the same feeling I got when people kept referring back and sometimes century back to what they meant by by certain terms and by certain ideas. Um, you know, there's just it's it's really a call for and, and what I'm what I'm advocating for is this need to embrace complexity and to reject any sort of binary understandings of like all six are or or, or all um, you know or all Punjabis think this way or all his, you know, whatever else, like any sort of very blanket statements um, in a way to reject that. I I truly, I know I'm challenging the reader uh, to keep up with these two different timelines, but I did feel like it was, um, it was a way to, uh, it was a way to more accurately and honestly reflect what one was hearing and, and what, six mean when they're talking about their history as well. And then these two timelines descending from 95 and ascending from 1839, they eventually uh, converge in this final, on the final chapter, 10,000 pairs of shoes, which is the chapter on the pivotal year of 1984. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I love the metaphor of the braid uh, because that's exactly how it felt when I was reading it as well. Um, you know, um, as you were speaking, I was thinking about how 
I mean, obviously, this entire story has a lot to do with, I mean, even the title says as much faith, gender and activism, right? And uh, I know from the outside, a lot of us uh, know that Sikhism is uh, known for its uh, egalitarian in terms of gender. And a lot of the stories in your book, at least my favorite ones, were uh, of women uh, being um, so uh, so resist- resilient in keeping together uh, the health of the community almost. And I was wondering what it is about uh, Sikh religious culture, and if, if you could say a little more about uh, how that may have affected the way these women saw themselves and their uh, responsibility and role in uh, within the family and also uh, in what we understand as the public sphere. Yeah, sure. Um, and really, culture is a great way to think about it because for the Sikh faith, um, it is it is a way of life, and all the all of our history and all of the history from the Guru period, starting with 1469, six had ten gurus, starting in 1469 with Guru Nanak. Um, the most for for us and the, those the stories and lessons that are ingrained in um, from from those bedtime stories and in Sikh kids' hearts are from very much from cultural and everyday living examples from the Guru's lives. And Guru Nanak, the first Guru, had set this trend off and wrote about it. And that's that writing is in our in our scripture in the Guru Granth Sahib now of just like how how completely awful and backwards and, and contrary to any sort of divine inspiration it is to um, discriminate against women in the ways in which society did um, at the time where when he lived, and I think building on from that legacy, each guru tried to um, try to live up to those teachings and and um, bestow um, Sikh women with leadership, and really make sure that we we felt that kind of divine connection as Sikh women. And it wasn't just something that we, you know, were thought of lesser than or unable to relate to, etc. But what has happened over time, and this really, I should say, culminated in the in uh, 1699, what happened with the 10th Guru, Guru Gobind Singh, and giving all Sikh women the common last name of Kaur, which is the name I use as well. It's not the name I grew up using, but I, I did legally change my name at some point. Um, and because over time, uh, so first he gave this common name Kaur to Sikh women and Singh to Sikh men really as, as a clear marker of um, equality between people because they were also not just fighting against sexism, but also casteism, which is deep-seated in South Asia as it was then and it is now. Um, so this idea of a collective and this idea of a name that stays with you pre-marriage, post-marriage, um, and you know builds a camaraderie, sisterhood, brotherhood, etc., was was really a beautiful radical idea of of giving people um you know it was, it was really a return of power to the people and over time of course the same culture that the gurus had uh had resisted um it's a very it's a very strong culture and patriarchy and casteism and all of that is extremely embedded in south asia so since Sikhs have largely lived in South Asia, and that's where the religion and the faith um, or the way of life has evolved over time, over the centuries, there has been regression. That's really the only way to think that, you know, most of us think about it, that the gurus centuries ago set these standards. And now today we're at a place where, 
yes, the teachings may be very egalitarian, but a lot of people worry about how the practice is very, has gone off on a trajectory that was um, never meant to be. Um, so that is, while that is true, and while as somebody who works on issues of intimate partner violence and, and other symptoms of patriarchy, like sex selective abortions, um, I, I recognize all of those deep issues in our families, in our homes, in our community. Um, I also was very resistant to this idea that sick women are are now just some like hapless group of people who are overridden by very masculine and dominant sick men, because I just didn't see that. I knew that couldn't be true. There's something that, um, and, and my feminist curiosity really drove me to asking um, more and more of the men who I began interviewing the stories about the women in their lives. And that's how some of the stories that you see included in the book actually came to be, where people were like, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, she'll be happy to talk to you if that's what you'd like. Sorry. Sorry for that background noise. But, um, you know, that is really something that um, I found very useful about this this hunch proving right for me that um, if you start talking to women, you will start understanding and non and non dominant genders. You will start actually understanding the the dominant narrative or the men's narrative um, and the male point of view much more and much deeper. Um, so I think that is is truly something that for me was. Um, that, that for me emerged as true through all my conversations. And, and I'm glad you note the resilience because I truly in all of this, the one is writing about torture and dehumanization and a lot of horrible things that shake the soul um, to imagine that human beings inflict on each other. One also heard stories of such tremendous um, resilience, often driven by the sick faith, often driven by people who said, you know, I don't care how my immediate circle is acting or I don't care how society currently is now. I have like a larger, um, larger validation, which is the faith for me that drives me. Um, so some people explicitly talked about that. Other people, you could see it in their in their lived lives. And and as, as you know, I, I try to as much as possible let women's um, stories and actually let all the stories speak for themselves instead of trying to extract too many prescriptions from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in a way, this book is such a such a uh, such an archive of uh, precisely because you're looking at oral histories. It's such an archive of uh, a community's memory of uh, the way things uh, uh, panned out. And I know that there were very difficult moments to talk about, and there were, as you uh, put it, there were silences in public discourse about certain things that happened. But there were also silences within. Uh, the community itself. I, I mean, silence is in the form of, say, missing bodies, bodies that just disappeared overnight. Um, and there was so much violence, as you have um, covered in your book. And I was, I was just curious about how you got people to talk about these really difficult encounters. How did they relive these moments? Was it, was it in any sense cathartic, or was was it difficult for people to start talking about it? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this this book would not have at all been possible without people really opening their hearts and traveling back in time with me. Um, I think one of the disservices, we do many disservices to disenfranchised communities or communities that are criminalized and under attack. But one of the disservices for sure is assuming that people don't want to speak about things or certain things, right? There's, um, I think instead of asking if the questions are being posed in the right way, 
um, if they're being, if the context is being explained, if the people doing the asking are being transparent um, and uh, approachable and trauma centered instead of focusing on that. And I mean that in a much deeper way than like some sort of checklist. Um, but in, we, we really begin to say, oh, the community doesn't want to talk about X. And usually for the sick community, oftentimes, especially and including in a lot of re- recent writing, there is this assumption that the community does not want to talk about sexual abuse, for example, and um, does not want to talk about women being attacked and, and subjected to violence. And as I've, um, as I mentioned in my very first chapter, and you know, one of the driving forces for me was, as I started thinking about recording the stories of women's experiences during conflict in South Asia, um, I was, I was told by a man actually of South Asian descent um, from a prominent foundation that, oh, if I wanted to do this work in Kashmir, maybe some people would talk to me, though he doesn't think that would happen. But his email basically said in Punjab, there were no cases um, and no mentions even of rape against women related to the conflict. And of course, I knew this to be false, um, but it wasn't like I had collected at that point enough stories um, to to prove otherwise. And I don't think it was um, this this book is ne- isn't and my project was never to collect like here are a hundred stories of women talking about about rape. It really was this larger question of how does a community want to talk about its own experience and so I have um, I remained you know coming to your question of how people responded I remained very open to because you know what what else what other position can one take that really was my um, that's really all I could be doing when I'm asking so much of people um, is that when I remain very open to euphemisms and people choosing how they wish to describe certain things. Um, and, you know, I, would it be okay if I read two paragraphs from the book? Yeah, of course, yeah. please. So I, I just chose this one as an example. So this, um, this is actually from, uh, this is an account that was part of a jailhouse letter that was smuggled out in 1993. So the, the woman who was in jail in a torture center at that time wrote, A most haunting spirit is of Surinder Kaur, young Monu's mummy. She had been taken away right from me. Her son, she had left him in my lap. Surinder was a principal of a school in Tarantaran with 400 students. Her husband had been in the Indian Army and now worked as security in a bank in Amritsar. He was picked up under allegations of harboring militants. And so the family was brought here, their young child in tow. We, they were accused of sheltering Ramesh, a Hindu pundit boy who had joined the Sikh militancy. She was tortured a lot. Four times a day, they would take her. She wanted no men to touch her body. But that is what happened. It was about 8 p.m. they took her away, dragging her while beating her. And she kept yelling for Monu, saying to me, he is now your responsibility. They killed her that night. Even one of the policemen was crying. He said, we told her to do part, and as she prayed, shot her. When she was killed, she was wearing one of my suits. And she means some balconies. Some policemen would taunt me and say, well, she took your turn. The next day after she was killed, her husband and other men were taken at two or three in the morning. I read about their supposed encounter killing in the papers. I didn't see anything about Surinder Kaur. Surinder Kaur and this story is in this this excerpt, um, you know, Punjab has countless Surinder Kaurs who were never counted 
um, and who were, and it became impossible to count what happened to uh, folks like her who were even killed and thrown down canals um, and, and also part of Punjab's disappeared because what a lot of these killings were happening in a context where there was just this absolute um, killing for profiteering model that the police were following. And the, and this is where, the, again, the imaginary of sick, militant, equal to turban-bearded, very aggressive, blood you know, running from his eyes kind of um, male, that image meant that the police were really getting bounties um, and were, were getting paid for quotas they fulfilled by killing sick men. And this is one of those examples of, you know, Surinder Kaur was, was killed, as were so many others um, picked up from her family or uh, associated with her family. But she was never even named in those police reports that would come out at that time, like six militants killed today by our brave police force or whatever else. And this just gives, um, and, I, and I did, this is from the chapter titled Monu's Mummy, because there's a, a deeper and beautiful and uh, link to the point of resilience that you made earlier story where about how these two women in a torture center together, both of them, the woman writing this and Surinder Kaur, had their children, young boys with them. And they had made this promise of, um, well, whichever one of us survives will take care of the other's child. Not only did the surviving woman, and this whole chapter goes through the fantastic reasons how and uh, under what circumstances one woman did survive, um, not only did she look out for Monu, and the chapter also explains how she was separated from Monu and it became very difficult to find him, etc. She actually opened an orphanage um, in really with this legacy of Surinder Kaur in her mind and that orphanage runs in Punjab even today. Um, so I think we miss out so many of these stories because of the deeply gendered nature of the conflict, of how um, the the violent supposedly agents were imagined at that time. And we just, you know, this is an example of women actually picked up and taken to prison. And then there are countless examples, many in this book of women who are championing the cases of those um, taken to prisons, right? So litigants in Punjab have been primarily women. Those who have glued and kept their families together have been women. Those who have, have raised kids and, and, and made it possible for there to be future generations um, have been women and those who've carried carried a lot of trauma have also been women. So I think for a lot of women, um, the point you said about whether it was catharsis, I, I, I did I did feel that in in several meetings um, that for a lot of women it was this point of okay, well let me tell you what I think because you're actually asking what I think instead of what you know asking me what happened to me or asking me what do I think about what happened um, to, uh, to us all. Um, so that, that, really, um, that really mattered. And you know, it might seem trite and funny and, and kind of off topic um, of the book, but as I began writing the book for a long time, I had a um, little note with a Miles Davis quote on it, which is don't play what's there, play what's not there. And I truly hope that the book reminds people that there's so much so much unspoken just like with any conflict um and that doesn't mean it's because people never want to tell those stories it just means we we have to find ways to access them and have to have good reasons and explain those reasons and why we're accessing those stories or why we want to yeah i mean that's very beautifully put i love that quote and i'm gonna remember that as i do my own work 
Um, that's um, pretty inspirational. Um, you know, I was also curious to hear, I guess, more about the diaspora or transnational networks that uh, facilit- facilitated the kind of activism that was emergent uh, in the times that you were studying or the, in the stories that you were hearing. And perhaps you could uh, tell us a little more about what kinds of international ties there were, how did um, objects, memories, um, stories circulate from um, beyond uh, the borders of uh, India, Punjab? Yeah, you know, the, and I've, I've mentioned the diaspora role and how the militancy especially is talked about or where the stories, survivor stories have even been first preserved and, and then amplified. But the book is, is truly about what was happening in Punjab by folks who, so the three, three people, um, the three main protagonists um, in the book were um, illustrated on the cover. Uh, Justice Ajit Singh Bans was a recently retired in 84. He had retired just a year before. Um, Justice of the Punjab and Haryana High Court. That's the appellate court of the two states, um, of the two states of Punjab and Haryana. And then Inderjit Singh Jeji, um, you know, worked for a large multinational, but was drawn back to Punjab as things were happening. And, and then after 84, never left Punjab and switched his work entirely as um as a human rights activist and tried different different ways of doing that through local politics. He became a member of legislative assembly for a very short time before he was suspended and, and then moved on just doing documentation work, which he does even now in his late 80s. And it's, it's really inspiring and fantastic. And then Baljeet Kaur, who was um, a part-time airline um, you know, office worker and a, a really a full-time homemaker who who's who's real who had this emotional very strong emotional reaction to what was happening um and and the disparity in what she was seeing on television in her really posh and nice Dundagar home versus what she was hearing from villagers when she would travel to her ancestral home in the village and then she became someone who dedicated her time and life um to also documenting including with a large video camera that till then she'd been using for kids' birthday parties and such. And she is one of the first really video warriors of Punjab who witnessed and recorded so much. And without attribution, a lot of those recordings have been used ever since, uh, including in the diaspora. But her recordings were also um, available there in Punjab. They weren't, you know, it wasn't something I accessed from here. Um, Inderjit Singh Jeji's archives were all with him. And uh, similarly, Justice Bans was notorious for not keeping records, but also somebody who was himself imprisoned in 1992 um, and during that time and I have one of the chapters next kill all the lawyers is about why what happened with him and his imprisonment matters but during that time they destroyed all his records the police came and just took everything from his home um, but a lot of a lot of their work uh, a lot of what they were inspired by most of what they were inspired by was was well was completely entrenched actually in Punjab and I think this um, this is, and similarly, all the case files that I was able to get from them or attorneys working with them um, is stuff that's still there. They're, they're you know, endangered or at risk, um, perhaps documents, but they're, they're there. People have kept them. Families would show me pictures and other things that they'd bring out, which of course they have, but maybe nobody had asked for a long time to look at them. Um, one of the families I, I describe in the chapter called Guavas and Gaslighting uh, one of the families talks about just their own attempts in New Delhi to just put out a simple notice um, 
about every year when their child's death anniversary happened. And the chapter has a whole uh, complicated and heartbreaking story about how they sent their child to live in South India, in fact, um, for to go to school there. And then anti-Sikh violence took place there and this young boy died. Um, but they talk about how, you know, they, they have all of these archives and they have his modern school, Delhi, um, books and everything else. But they weren't even allowed to just put two lines in the newspaper saying that their child was a Shaheed because they wanted to call him a, a martyr because he had really been, in their minds, not martyr in the sense of like he was a combatant and out there, but he had been killed because simply because he wore a turban and they saw that as part of the price that people paid at that time just to wear faith markers. Um, so these, a lot of this exists and existed um, when I was working on this right there in Punjab. I think the role of the international community um, when it came to these protagonists, especially was that they engaged with the international community. Um, I, I describe how Indrajit Singh Jeji came and talked um, at the uh, at the British Parliament and attended UN sessions in um Baljeet Kaur quit her airline job and in 1986 traveled to Amnesty International's offices and provided them with some of the first testimonies from Punjab. Um, but the, they really engaged the international community, but they did not depend on it. They weren't expectantly depending on somehow that, you know, now that we've done, here's our press release, we told the UN, blah, 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 and now it's up to them, right? Like they, they didn't have that dependence or ex, um, or expectance because they knew that what needed to happen needed to happen in a very um, grassroots way, which includes things like what they did surrounding police stations, going and sitting outside government officials, you know, rooms, going and surrounding the governor's office with signs of here are our demands and here's the list of disappearances we've compiled um, and all of that. So I think over the years, Punjab um, and the activism and human rights issues about Punjab are largely thought of as coming from the diaspora and having this kind of boomerang effect um, in some ways where then people in Punjab start paying attention again, which again, I feel is another disservice done to the post-conflict Punjab, Punjabi Sikh community because the stories and the pain and the legacies are the richest right there for people who've continued to live right there in Punjab. They also, however, continue to live in environments where talking about things can feel, still feel very dangerous. And I think that's that's why a lot of, uh, in the diaspora where people seem to enjoy, um, you know, generally have enjoyed more freedom of speech and experiment expression and press and everything, it's more obvious that people talk about it, but people talk about it in Punjab all the time um, as well. So, you know, my book, the book starts with me sitting in a, in a village um, surrounded by a group of men, which is is not unusual for the kind of work um, that I was doing here. And it's really under the very shade of, actually shade of patriarchy, really. And it, it really, you know, you the reader enters watching me watch these men tell their stories in pieces and over and with this prevailing unease about a past that really very quickly livens trauma, and I think this this aspect um, about you know the stories are right there. People would begin talking about things um, in the middle of long meandering conversations, and and it was very clear that this wasn't the first time they were returning to these conversations, and it wasn't that somebody had come from America and that's why they were talking. They were used to feeling these feelings and they would talk about them with people in a shorthand way, but really expanding on it and having it recorded in some way was perhaps different um, and new in, in some sense. 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's really helpful to make sense of uh, the how they were perceiving the the audience, I guess, of these stories. And um, you know, I was also wondering. You'd mentioned that a lot of the litigation uh, is uh, was done by women, uh, and I was curious to know if, if, whether there are still initiatives and uh, community activism even now that is trying to, I guess. Uh, um, bring out some of these forgotten narratives, bring justice to the survivors of, of the conflict and what is happening um, right now? There are, there are um, just absolutely amazing heroic efforts by lawyers who began cases, you know, decades ago. And, and, in, and in a lot of these cases, not just in Punjab, across South Asia, and this is of course of, you know, people who are familiar with South Asia would say, well, this is just a, Fact, uh, just fact of litigation in that part of the world that you just inherit cases. The father starts a lawsuit and the children complete the lawsuit, you know. Um, but it's not just the litigants. I think repeatedly lawyers um, in, in these kinds of cases and the litigants themselves, it's intergenerational almost. Like um, Justice Bans, uh, you know, his his own son is an attorney in the Punjab and Haryana High Court, a human rights lawyer, and um, just his growth as a human rights lawyer and and the imperative he feels to do these cases is also something captured in the book. So he's one of um, several, though not, of course, there's, there's no mean, by no means is this a majority of people. There's still a very small minority, but there are um, human rights lawyers who've persevered over the years. And um, there are groups and collectives. Um, there's a Punjab uh, disappearance project that has been, bringing and, and re-bringing this issue of um, disappearances to the courts. Uh, what happened, you know, my book starts in 1995, talking about the the work that was done by Jaswan Singh Kalra, who uncovered secret and mass cremations in Punjab. And at that time, when he uncovered them, when con- the conflict was in many ways winding down in 1995, he traveled um, to the U.S., to Canada. Uh, he, tra- he traveled to England, to Canada, and he was offered asylum um, by these governments. And he said, no, I'm going back. Like We're going to be litigating these cases. I've gotten all these affidavits signed by families. I know that um, if I disappear now, like actually willingly leave, um, these families are going to think, why did he ever get our names put down? And why would we come you know, be the ones again after losing a family member, now be the ones coming to court. So he knew that for that moral support, he needs to go back and continue his work. But then completely brazenly, he was disappeared himself just months after these international trips. Um, so the way his, that mass formation story, that sensational, like even high court judges and Supreme Court of India is talking about we're hanging our heads in shame, kind of how could this be happening in a democracy? Um, after all of that, it was it was as if nothing happened, really. In the years that followed, despite citizens groups, um, including non-Sikh groups, uh, some collectives from, from uh, Delhi and then Sikh and Punjabi groups in Punjab, pursuing this, this case of this issue of mass formations for so long, it ended really with a whimper, with you know some fifteen hundred families getting compensation, even though some fifty thousand, um, well at least twenty five thousand mass cremations or cremations, illegal cremations, have been estimated by Kalra, and many lists have been put out and, and exposed. But fifteen hundred or so families get some monetary compensation, and there are no criminal convictions at all. So it's as if the courts um, 
right and the Supreme Court and the National Human Rights Commission of India that was involved um, in in the eventual in this work eventually or in closing this chapter eventually they they accepted this idea of these that these were somehow murder less murders right like no one killed these people like nobody's brought to account nobody's name nobody's brought to account by the courts oh but here's some compensation because yes we agree that they were illegally cremated but like they were killed, but they were murdered. What about that? No, nothing about that. Um, and that aspect, the incompleteness, um, is what the you know thing groups like the Punjab, um, the Punjab Disappearances Advocacy Project right now, uh, what they're putting out, and and it's really something that um, is is an uphill uphill task because as as you'll have noted in the chapters, like litigants litigants die, witnesses die. Um, you know, lawyers, there's so much turnaround, things change in the courts. There's just um, so much over the years that cases are put through. So much happens over the years that the case no longer usually has that immediate um, or has the best evidence or that kind of freshness and immediate appeal that would make um, that that would end, you know, end it in some sort of uh, to or bring it to some sort of just consequence. So, yes, the work continues in some regards but is is extremely challenging and especially so because of the deliberate uh, continuances uh, that these cases have been put through mm-hmm. um you know as you were speaking i was also uh, thinking I was, I was wondering how your work as a lawyer has evolved i guess after writing this book and if uh, you've been thinking about law more expansively after writing this book or maybe law's limitations, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, definitely law's limitations were something that as somebody who was in some way familiar with cases like this and who had grown up um, in South Asia, the law's limitations were never entirely uh, lost on me. I went to law school and also went to public policy school hoping to get um, some more tools for organizing and, and, and management and just thinking more broadly. But um, I do think that I was somebody for a long time who thought, okay, South Asia doesn't have a human rights commission. It doesn't have a human rights court. Um, and the lack of those kinds of mechanisms is something one should work on. Um, but over time, I started embracing the reality that we are talking about um, largely a culture, uh, and you know this is just like societally um, the the leaning is against um, institutional when it comes to, when it comes to such emotional things such as pogroms based on faith and people being persecuted and made enemies um, within their own um, homes based on you know, their political opinions. Um, when it comes to these very emotional things, we're still talking about a society that's largely unmediated by institutions and feels quite unmediated by laws. And and I became more and more interested in like everyday people's stories. Like we grew up with stories. Um, most sick kids grew up with these stories. Those of us who are 84 babies of people whose lives were saved by non-sicks um, in 84 and people who uh, were you know housed or hidden under beds or in closets or other planatics and other things in their non-sick neighbors' homes all across India when anti-sick pogroms took place. We also grew up with stories, of course, of non-sicks who not only were the ones killing on the roads but were 
the you know middle class or upper middle class neighbors of a Sikh family who gave up um who gave up uh their their neighbors and were just like yeah Sikhs deserve a beating and by beating they meant like murders mass murders so with that I always had this sense of curiosity around for South Asian that curiosity has become even stronger um how how do we tell everyday stories to people who are going to make those split second life changing decisions which which are all the difference between harbor and harm for for their you know neighbors and and like you mentioned um when you mentioned growing up in the south and you know yes supposedly all one country yeah the way the maps have been drawn after 47 um here's india and there's this very big project and all of india soft power and bollywood tries to represent one country but the deep diversity in the country, right? The 400 or so languages of the country, the, you know, the, the fact that the foods that are delicacy in one part are intolerable in another part and all of those <laughs> things, right? Um, that that right. we all know that can be very beautiful also means that there is, um, there, there is a lot of opportunity for pitting people against each other. And that's really what Punjab became a blueprint for for the future by very pernicious forces, which was if you can find a minority on whom to pit all your problems, in that case, Indira Gandhi found the six, um, and you can just make them into the enemy community, then you can turn voter banks towards you just by seeming as the savior from enemy community and truth be damned about, you know, what else you're doing. Um, and, you know, in 2020, as we're talking, this, this model is... Um, you know, is is in full force um, in India, and the targets are are different minority community and Muslims in India bearing, even during the shutdowns during coronavirus, um, we're seeing just Muslims in India bearing the brunt of this this model of find a minority and pin all your problems on them to distract from the actual the country's actual problems as a large, very diverse, um, largely very poor country. So, I think. Um, yeah, I may have forgotten where this question started from, but but, <laughs> but, but yeah, but here's, this is where I'm at. I think um, Punjab, you know, this book is for these reasons, not just about Punjab and not just about South Asia to me either. I think, uh, yeah, as a lawyer, right, like law and society and how they both influence each other and, and kind of are in this dance with each other, I think is um, very different in different societies. Um, and, and so... I think that that part is what um, for me has become stronger and stronger over time, that feeling of we need to find what works uh, towards these goals of human rights and, and equality for all, rather than saying, well, oh, the law and legal systems and litigation works well in one culture. So necessarily that's the way to do it in another culture. I mean, we're right now seeing some of the Supreme Court's own lawyers talking about the complete silence in 2020 despite more digitization and more real-time reporting, much more than what happened in Punjab, uh, the complete silence in the face of um, quashing of civil civil liberties. So when that's a situation now, um, definitely going back to the 80s and 90s, it was very apparent that when things weren't even tweeted in real time, um, there was a huge disconnect. A court could say, sure, bring this person, you know, habeas corpus petition, present them before us. And the police officers are like, okay, good. That just means we have more time to kill him. Like that's, they really responded. And sometimes they're on the record and, and I, you know, I have 
some of that in the book, even though this book is not based on perpetrator or um, defendant or accused's interviews. But um, I have some of that in here of just how blatant it was of, wow, sure, Supreme Court has this law and then we have ours is kind of, and that's actually a direct quote in one of the chapters as well. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's, uh, I, I, in some ways, I, I can be described as a little bit of a recovering and relapsing attorney, um, because I, <laughs> I think I, I, I come back to it as a, in certain contexts where it can work, um, where there is a rule of law, um, it, it feels very important. And then even in the context of Punjab, when I see the work being done by tireless um, attorneys today, it, it does re-inspire me to engage and read those cases and, and feel like, okay, here, the law is a lesser violent form of dispute resolution let's try this or let's put our eggs in this basket and then other times it doesn't feel quite as uh, well thank you uh, i was uh, we've taken up a lot of your time and i don't mean to keep you around for longer uh, but before we end i would be really interested to know what you're working on right now and if you could tell us a little more about what we can mm-hmm. expect yeah um you know right now we're talking april 2020 during the covid shutdowns it feels like an endless list of things to think and write about but um south asia and elsewhere but one of the things a theme that runs in the book you mentioned resilience um i've thought of it as trauma centeredness the way in which people actually um choose to engage with the trauma of others while also having their own personal traumas. That's something I teach about and I train about, and I haven't written very much about them. I'm trying to consciously do a little bit more of that. Um, but there is the other project that I hope you can expect from me, which is smaller, shorter stories, but in but using the vehicle of fiction. Because in this project mm-hmm. over the years, I heard so much that could never be really reported as nonfiction. Some stuff that was very personal to people, family secrets, stories of domestic violence, stories that I had to respect and not tell at all in the book. Mm-hmm. And um, Cynthia Enloe, the amazing um, feminist author, talks about wars having their ending inside families. And that is just so true, I think, of mm-hmm. what conflicts do. So I hope um, I'll be able to use you know, fiction to kind of talk about some of the intrigues and secrets and other things that people did share but that didn't make it into a non-fiction book um though i'm told fiction writing requires uh, and I, I i'm experiencing this more space you need more space and time and right. between working lawyering teaching and parenting a toddler i'm not finding that space and time as much as i'd like to <laughs> but those, that, that's a very hopeful future project that i think would um would help uh, kind of close the loop on some of the stories in my own brain and heart uh, that are in the book as well. That's fantastic. And I look forward to reading that when uh, it's out. Uh, All right, Malika, thank you so much for joining us today. And this was such a wonderful conversation. I learned so much and I really loved your book. And I hope more people buy it and read it um, and learn from it just as I did. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sneha. I really appreciate it. 